Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled, uh, the nuclear bomb went off, spoiler-filled discussion on the themes, the characters, and the meaning of this movie. I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what is up? What is up? It is Oppenheimer Day. Uh, we get to talk about the end of the world, which is a little bit of a different vibe than talking about the Barbie movie. It is. We've we've done Barbie, and now we're finishing the double feature with Oppenheimer. And I actually wanted to start there. Quick reflections on Barbenheimer. And Barbenheimer. Why did, that, why did that become a thing? Oh, man, I don't even know. So I think it was like... These two directors, one that like has, you know, a decade and a half of great films, right? Like Christopher Nolan is a superstar. Pretty much everything he makes, even if it's like not great, like it's people talk about it, right? Like a bunch of people went and saw Tenet and no one understood it, but we were talking about it. But generally great record as a director, big blockbuster films, Inception, Dark Knight trilogy, right? right. Great stuff. Um, and so I think people, you know, any, anytime Nolan's got someone got something coming out, like people are on board and then people are were super hyped about about the new the new uh Greta Gerwig film and they were coming well, out the same day. Well, and that's the key, day, which is wild. That's the key is it wasn't just a Barbie movie which was IP that was loved and adored, but it was a Barbie movie directed by Greta Gerwig who right. is like for film people, for people like me and you, like she is loved, she is respected, she has been making awesome stuff for quite a while now and right. so it's like all right, these two movies, which seem totally opposite, like, could not sudden... be more more different, and they're coming out the same day. But they were coming out the same day, and yeah. so it just became a thing. And I think other people are going to try to um, replicate Barbenheimer, going to try to make that a thing. But I hope they don't, because right. it was just lightning in a bottle, or it was this perfect thing that kind of came out at once. It was one of those things where it, it's like lightning in a bottle is, is a really good way to way to put it. It was like. An internet meme just took on like it was like a real world meme. Like you, you know, like you you see like r random memes all the time. They're like, oh, that's funny, right? Oh, there's someone yada yada, whatever, right? Like and but for some reason, this just caught like it was a meme basically that caught the public imagination and everyone just like jumped on. Like I I haven't seen so many people, just normal people, so excited to go see a double feature in a weekend like ever, you know, in my life. So my daughter wanted to go do the Barbenheimer double feature. She actually wanted to do them both in the same day. Okay. And I was like, I can't do it. I'm too old. My brain breaks too much. But let's go back to back days. Yeah. So we went on a Saturday and a Sunday. Saturday saw Barbie. We've done a whole podcast about it. Loved sure it. The theater's laughing. Everyone's dressed in sparkles. And I was so blown away. I think because my expectations for Barbie were really low, even though there was a lot of hype. I was still like, it's a movie about a Mattel toy. How right. much could it How be? How good could it like, possibly be? I was like, that's probably the best possible movie they could have made about a Mattel toy that I would care. And right. so I had really low expectations for Barbie. Oppenheimer, on the other hand, I was like, this was my number one movie of 2023. I was so looking forward to it. Yeah. And so I had Barbie fresh in my head and I went and saw Oppenheimer and I hated it. I mean, I absolutely, this is what, this is where I'm coming in with like the hot sauce oh, take. No. Okay, like I okay. absolutely hated this movie. Um, 
And you can ask me why or any other questions. Sure. Uh, like, I just want you to keep talking. Normally, I'll jump in and say something, but I'm like, you have to explain wh- wh- why. Like, was it the back-to-backness of it all? Or was it the Christopher Nolan-ness of it all? Like, what, what, what got you? Like, what didn't suck you in? So, I think because Barbie was just so digestible, it was so, like, we talked about this in the episode, but, like, every single thing was like, hey, here's what's going on. Here's who the characters are that matters. Here's what it means. Here's what the plot means. Like it was so easy to follow. And then I watched Oppenheimer and I was just, my head was spinning. Yeah. Like, like 20 minutes into it. And I was like, we're dealing with 10 timelines. We're dealing with 30 characters. I don't even know where I am. I don't even know what, like, I know they're trying to make a bomb and I know the bomb worked. And so I was like, okay, great. But they were throwing so much at me that I was just like, this is a little overwhelming and it doesn't feel engaging or powerful or fun. Yeah. Um, so can I, so, can I go ad- ahead. admit something right now? Yeah. I wasn't going to mention this on the podcast, but I went to see this movie twice and I walked out of it the first time, not because I didn't like it. I was 40 minutes in and I said, I w- want to like this movie, but my head was in such a different space. I came in like work had been crazy that day and there was like things going through my head. I, I don't know if I've ever walked out of a movie in my life. And wow. I was, and I was sitting there and I went like, I'm going to spend three hours not watching this movie because my brain isn't there. And so like I leaned over to my wife and I said, like, I'm so sorry. But I was like, I need to leave because I need to come back and watch this movie when I'm actually ready to watch it. And we left, which is. Which like, so I fully understand what you're saying about it is so complicated that you were like, what is even happening? Like, I I knew that I wasn't going to enjoy it until I came back ready for it. And so I I went in again and like watched it a week later. And Nolan, who, you know, I love, we love, we've done Memento on this podcast before. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll do other Nolan movies. In 2020, Tenet came out and that was the first movie that I saw back in the movie theater. So similarly, I was like, okay, I'm so excited. Yeah. We've been sheltering in place. We've been quarantining. Movie theaters are finally opening. I don't care. I'm going to get sick. I just need to be around movies again. So I went and saw it. Sure. And I hated that movie too, because I was just like, it was so, the dialogue was like hard to follow. Everything about the plot was really overwhelming. And so it was just such a bad thing. And so I just felt my Nolan baggage. Mm-hmm. in that movie when I went and saw it. Mm. But we're a couple of minutes in the podcast, and so I have to finish the story, yeah. which is, so we're like, okay, we've got a, we have a movie podcast. We do this for a living or for a really fun hobby mostly. And so uh, <laughs> I was like, I owe something to our listeners, which is watching this movie again. And I watched it again, and it unlocked for me, and I loved it on the second viewing. Okay, And so this was a, because I know you're like, what are we? I know what you're thinking, which is like, what are we going to do with this podcast? That I was Rob like, hates I was this like, movie? is this going to be the Truman Show all over again? <laughs> um, but I had to watch it again, and yeah. it just unlocked for me. And it's still, I don't know if this is ever a movie. I'll be interested to see where it lands for me. But that I return to over and over again, like an Inception sure. or The Dark Knight or something like that. But when I watched it again, I and part of the reason that I also was thinking was I was like, so many people who I respect are like Rob. This movie is it. This movie may be Nolan's masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I need to watch it again. And it just, and I'm going to talk later on about where the movie 
specifically unlocked for me mm-hmm. and where it was like, okay, I get this. I get what he's doing. Yeah. But on a second viewing, I was like, this is one of our greatest filmmakers talking about such a powerful topic. Yeah. Um, and it's just it like masterpiece is a word that like maybe I use too much, but I could definitely see why people were saying it. Yeah. I definitely think it's going to get a lot of Oscar love. Mm-hmm. And I think it's totally warranted. I think this movie is legitimately great and powerful, but I don't think I would have, if I would have come on this podcast, just seen it once, I probably would have ah, like given faint praise and like, res- you have to respect it technically, but I was like, it just didn't do it for me. Like, right. The emotions like, weren't there. Emotionally, I did not connect to it at all. Right. I was like, philosophically, intellectually, I can get it. Emotionally, I did not connect to it the first time. Again, I think because I just walked out of Barbie, it was back to back. Um, and this movie demands so much from you. Yeah. So here's something that I think is really interesting in comparing this movie to Barbie versus comparing this movie to another film that we are podcasting about uh, very soon, which is The Social Network. And I think both of you, both you and I watched The Social Network before watching Oppenheimer for a second time, correct? That's true. That's correct. And I think there is something actually very akin to Social Network and what that film is is doing and Oppenheimer and coming into Oppenheimer with The Social Network in my brain, I think actually really helps me dial in to the movie. Um, Because I think... I think the social network in the way that they do their sort of um, uh, court, not courtroom, but um, their their lawyer scenes, the, basically. Yeah, the deposition and the depositions. That's yeah. that's the word I was looking for. I was like, it starts with a D, but I don't know what it is. Deposition, right? The way they are like narrating their story through deposition, very much in the same way that Oppenheimer is, has a couple depositions, right? Um, I think the social network is much more digestible, holds your hand a little bit more and is much more um, because it's telling a chronologically narrative story, even like through using those depositions. Um, it it I think it primed me in a way to be more prepared for this story um, and to digest it better, especially with a protagonist that is sort of both likable and not likable at the same time. I think there's a lot of like akinness to the like biographical uh, courtroom drama thing that both these movies have. And I think it actually helped me a lot coming into it with that in my head. Yeah, I think that's, we talked on the Social Network podcast about how, um, and we're not sure if we're going to release that podcast before or after this episode. And so you, you'll see, but <laughs> we don't, if it's we not don't your know, feed that's yet, we're being ambiguous about yeah. it, but it's coming. We are talking about Social Network. Um, and we talked about in that episode how that is a, that movie is what so many biopics have leaned into over the last 10 years. Like it is so many things are leaning into that movie, but I hated the deposition scene on the first watch because Mm -hmm. I was like, they did all this work and they went all the way through it and there was no stakes. It was like, okay, a little slap on the wrist and that's it. And I was like, what is the point of this? Like, it just felt like meaningless, like literally meaningless. So it wasn't just that I didn't understand what was going on, but it was like, I felt there was no stakes or no power to it. And on the second watch, I realized exactly what they were doing with that scene or not the scene, that whole. Yeah. So what, what did, what, what clicked for you the second time? Okay. So I got to get straight into the categories to unpack this. Okay. So can we start with my most meaningful scene? Let's just go right to it. So I'm watching the movie and I'm still, even on a second time, like, they are throwing so much. They are jumping through time. They're going all the way through. 
And then in the movie, you know, the bomb test goes off, all that sort of thing. And then they actually, you know, drop the bombs. And then after they drop the bombs, you see him on the base and everyone is like cheering and waving flags and that sort of scene. And he comes out there and it is like the rock star moment. It's Oppenheimer, the rock star. He's coming the whole everyone at the base, all these people. He's built this city to build this to build this bomb. And so everyone's cheering for him. And as he gets out and starts talking about it, all the sound drops out and he hear, you hear a bomb sound effect and you see the faces like melting off and everything else. And I found out that the girl whose face kind of melts off or shreds a little bit actually is Christopher Nolan's daughter. Oh my um, God. And so fact check that like someone who's listening, but I believe that <laughs> that is the case. We, we keep like dropping random facts like, hey, this is a special person. And then sometimes we're wrong. So but <laughs> yeah. if that's true, wild, wild choice. Hold us accountable. It's fine. I can yeah. take it. But I'm, I'm 99% <laughs> sure it's Nolan's daughter. And I think that scene of like, he did this thing, he achieved something. And then he's instantly two things. One, he's ashamed. And two, he's terrified by what he just did. And he says two things that are really interesting uh, in that like big rah-rah speech. One, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, this, this thing cost us a lot, but not nearly as much it cost Japan, like the pain that it cost Japan. And everyone goes and cheers. And he does this like jab at Japan and everyone cheers for it. And then two, he actually takes a stab at Germany and he's like, my only regret is that we didn't get to drop this on Germany. And then boom, everyone else cheers. And yeah. Everything just drops out. And then he leaves that room and he sees everyone throwing up. He see like, and I don't know if that's, I'm assuming that's like a vision of like what he's imagining to be happening. Although there may be some radiation poisoning that they were all dealing with real time. So I wasn't sure if that was real or not, Mm -hmm. but him dealing with the horror of what he's just done motivates everything in the last hour. And I realized like, Oh, the deposit, and this is all in the movie. I was again, just maybe too (laughs) mad to see it. It's very clearly in the text, but I, but it just clicked to me of like, Oh, this whole deposition, this long scene that they're, doing and keep cutting back to the point isn't about his guilt or innocence. The point is about him atoning for this horrible thing that he's done. And the reason he's not fighting back and arguing for it is because he actually feels that he's a sinner in some way and needs for atonement. And Mm -hmm. he wants to distance himself of like how this all unfolded was not on me and not my idea. And that's what the last hour, like a lot of people I've heard like, ah, by the last hour I was bored with it. The Mm -hmm. last hour I loved because it's really dealing with the guilt and consequences of what this was. Right. I mean, I I remember thinking that once the bomb dropped, like you feel like once the bomb drops, the movie should be over in the next 10 to 15 minutes. Right. And it is not. (laughs) Um, And it's it was a little bit like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, you know, those movies like Return of the King or something where you feel like, oh, like. There's a whole nother act to this movie. Yes. <laughs> right. There's there's a whole. Oh, OK. Strap in. Right. Like and I remember feeling that for sure of like, oh, OK, uh, I need to, you know, reboot to take in. Cause clearly, there's a lot more coming at me. Um, but yeah, the, the, the movie is not complete without that last half of of or the last not half, but the, that last section. I think it's probably 40, 45 minutes, maybe, you know, yeah. Um, that also brings the Robert Downey Jr. deposition. That was the one to me that seemed completely like 
untethered for most of the movie where I was like, who is this man and why do we keep cutting to him? Because he seems yep. marvelously unimportant. Um, <laughs> but it's Robert and, Downey Jr. So but it's like, Robert Downey Jr. So I'm OK watching it. Yeah. Um, but like it, there's I, I just don't understand. Like, why do we need two narrators here? And that all comes together in the end as well um, with this I- idea of like who is who is the villain in in this, I guess. And I um, and. It is really complex, I, I before we got on this this podcast, one of the things that I said is like, I'm not sure what I'm gonna have to say about this movie because it is so great that like sometimes a movie to me like tops out above what I feel capable of talking about because it's hitting so far above my weight class, right? That I just kind of like want to stand up and applaud. Um, but the the way that all the sort of emotional catharsis comes in at the end about guilt and responsibility and what what you have to do based on the consequences of your actions and what that means, like is to me so much the heart of of the movie, right? That, that is, that, that makes this movie so much more than a historical biopic. It's, it's the exploration of honestly, that first text that comes up on the screen about Prometheus and how he stole the fire from the gods and then was tortured for eternity for what he had done. Like yes. that is that that's starts the movie. And then that's where we end the movie is this, this, um, you know, that is, that is yeah, the that meaning. quote, that quote anchors us. And, you know, so many times I'm always embarrassed to like imagining if Christopher Nolan stumbled upon this podcast and heard what Rob Stennett and Andrew Harmon thought uh, this is what his movie meant. But I also think there is no greater purpose than to wrestle through what a movie like this means. Sure. And to just be like, oh, this perp was cool or whatever else. It's like, totally. no, what is he doing here? What is he saying? And a lot of times in this podcast, I can jump on and be confident of like, mm-hmm. this is exactly what this means. This is where it's going. But this movie has so much on its mind that it is overwhelming to talk about. It is overwhelming to distill because it's holistic. It's this whole man's life. Right. And it's the introduction of the most damaging force in human history. Right. So, yeah, there's like so many different elements there. The two that you just mentioned, it's like a biography, which really covers almost his entire life. Right. Right. And then it also is dealing with one of the most consequential events in or creations in literally human history, right? The the moment where we created the thing that could destroy the planet. Like we'd never given ourselves that power before. It's like a godlike power. It is insane. And I think sometimes we forget that. I think I do. Like, you know, my whole life there's been an atomic bomb, so it just exists. Right? People that live through the Cold War certainly don't have that same feeling. Um but Well and, was, and real quick on that, like you know, once this was introduced, like for our parents and grandparents generation, there were bomb drills underneath the desk. Like right. the threat of nuclear war real. I don't think my kids understand it in the way that I do. And I don't think I understand it in the way that my parents do. Yeah, I, I, I know that I don't understand it. Like the Cold War ended in like what, 98 or sorry, uh, 80, 89. Yeah, I want to say 89, like 89. I was born in 87. So I was like one and a half when the Berlin Wall came down. So. Like, I, I just simply never was present for any of that. You know, it, it feels like like history. But I know there's so many people even now, like today, that like that is that is not history. That fear is, you know, something that they grew up with and lived with for decades. 
Right. And, you know, like for me, War Games is one of those movies that's like burned in my head. I would love to like cover that in the podcast, but it was this sort of fear of like, okay, what if thermonuclear war could happen at any moment? And it was just, again, in the 80s, that was very prominent of like, okay, Russia's arm, there was all these space wars, literally Star Wars, Reagan called it, of like, all right, we're arming up with nuclear bombs, they're arming up with nuclear bombs, and what is going to happen? Right. And so, anyway, yeah, this movie so, cares about that, and it cares about Oppenheimer. And it cares about Oppenheimer, and I think the way that this movie covers a person's entire life, like, I've seen a lot of biopics, mostly about musicians, because they seem to be the ones we make the most for some reason. That's true. Um, but I think the way that Nolan tells this story non-chronologically, which is his thing, (laughs) for better or worse, (laughs) um, this is, this is the closest movie I think I've ever seen to reading an autobiography. I know he Mm. read American Prometheus and he said like, I'm like, he adapted the novel and there's a lot of times where I've like read a novel or like read a book and watched the movie and you go like, oh, they chopped out a whole bunch. And very, very few times have I watched a movie and said like that captured the whole book really, really well. Um, there's a movie called Blindness that no one's ever seen, but it is a perfect adaptation of the book. Look it up. Um, but I felt like um, watching this movie, I said I, I felt like there's so much packed in here and they're moving through it so succinctly and efficiently and covering so many details in a way that is digestible if you're leaning forward and not relaxed that it felt like it was truly covering someone's like entire life in a way that didn't feel like now we're skipping five years now we're skipping five years now we're skipping five years which is like if the i know the aretha franklin movie respect kind of does that or like a lot of movies will just like yeah, walk skip the line important it's kind of like the elvis movie it's like okay he's there and now he's growing and i want to talk about the jumping around in time for a moment because What's tricky about making a movie like this is we literally know, like, okay, they're successful. They succeed in the mission, Mm -hmm. and it's catastrophic, and it changed the world. So that, like, lets so much air out of the balloon and the tire. Uh, I don't know which metaphor is better, but, you know, it lets lets steam out of the engine of the atomic bomb. And so, but jumping around in time makes it so much more powerful because it's like, we're going to, like, there's this event that happened, and we're going to keep jumping around how it affected his personal life, how it affected politicians, how it affected the world afterwards. And it was just right. like, it was almost like if you've ever cracked your iPhone, if you've ever dropped it and there's that one little shatter and then it quickly like starts like shattering yes. your whole screen. Yes. That's what this movie felt like much more so than like, Hey, I'm going to tell you a sequential story. It's like, Hey, this event shattered everything and we're going to keep jumping around and see how it affected his marriage see how it affected our country, see how it affected McCarthyism and politics. It's all these different things. And the jumping around actually gives it so much more weight and power, but it demands a lot more from the viewer. Totally. So I think one of the things that you're touching on there that I think is what gives this movie stakes, right? If this movie was about do they make the bomb or not, not an interesting movie because they do. And we know that very clearly, right? Like sort of like if Titanic had been about does the boat, the boat sink, it would have sucked, but it really isn't right. Like it's about like what happens to Jack and Rose. Yes. And anything could happen. You know, the boat's going to sink, but anything could happen to them. And so I think ultimately this movie concerns itself with two things that we don't know as much about, which is. What, like what you said, what is the fallout politically and within the like establishment and the scientific establishment and the political establishment 
based on the bomb, which we get sort of the second half of the movie. And then the first half of the movie, I think, is super concerned with Oppenheimer himself, a person that we're told we should sort of respect for his genius. The movie is telling us to respect this person. Right. But it's walking you through his life for a whole bunch of stuff that is like, I think the first half of the movie is concerned with, was Robert Oppenheimer a communist? Which is not the movie I thought I was going to walk into. Right. And I like I know Robert Oppenheimer was the guy who ultimately led the project and made the bomb. I know that. But I don't know anything about whether or not he was a communist. So that could have come down on any side. He could have been a Russian sympathizer by the end for all I knew. Right. Right. And so the fact that it was concerning itself with these kind of deep personal and political issues and not so much will they do the thing that gave all of these things so much more tension, right? Because you you didn't know. So I want to talk quickly about the communist point. Sure. And again, about the deposition itself, which is like the other thing that unlocked for me in that scene where he's seeing everyone melt and that sort of stuff is he realizes I sold this thing on a lie, which is like, we have to build the bomb or Hitler's going to build it first. It's us versus Hitler. Like that's Mm -hmm. what we're doing. And then ultimately, by the time they drop the bomb, Hitler has committed suicide. Like Hitler is out of the picture. Right. But he sold everyone on like the simple idea of like it's us versus Hitler. Right. And it was much more complicated than that of like, no, it's us versus this thing. And now it's. And so he realized like after this was like, okay, I can't just hold this simple party line anymore of like now it was us versus Hitler and that's all that mattered. And then as soon as that was over, it's us versus Russia. And that's all that matters. We have to like build more bombs in them and whatever else. And the, the, what he realizes is like, no, building more bombs is not the answer. Vilifying Russia and just saying, okay, we've got, we're in an arms race with them is not the answer. And yeah. so he wrestles through that. And therefore he is labeled a communist because the politicians, what they want, and I think still want even to this day is like, no, there's a simple line. It's the brand. You say it right. and repeat it. And that's what a good patriot does. Yeah, oof, wow, that's that is super true. That idea of like patriotism is simple. I think post post 9-11 patriotism got really simple. Yep. Right. And it took, you know, uh, a lot of people willing to lean into the nuance of things before we were like, OK, maybe this isn't that simple. Right. Um, I think it's it's, you know, the McCarthyism is definitely framed in, in that same same way. Um one of the things that I think this movie does, which brings me sort of back to the social network of, of it all, is this idea of genius and ambition being its own motivator that you can hide behind other things. Mm. And so I feel like that scene you were talking about where they all get together and they're all in the room and they're like, Hitler killed himself. The Like the European theater of this war is over and half the scientists at Los Alamos are like, so we should stop. Right. And then suddenly there's a new argument. He says, like, they won't understand the power of this thing until they have it. And they won't understand the horror until they've used it or something, whatever, whatever that is. There's this new additional argument. This thing we're building is terrible, but we have to complete it in order to help people. Right. There's like it's 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 that like continued justification that really, if you look at it, started off with like geniuses that suddenly could be important, find this excuse to, to do this thing and are trying to morally justify it to themselves. And some of them can't. Kenneth Branagh's character shows up and says, like, 
I can't morally justify this. Thank you for smuggling me out of Copenhagen. I'm not going to help. Yep. And um, but you see the, these other guys that are able to morally justify it. And how far that kind of lie or moral justification goes. And I think there's two moments where you see that one is the scene that you talked about where he's in the room. Everyone's cheering for him like patriotism, like going crazy. And one of the elements that scenes that I love is that they're cheering and then the bomb goes off in his mind. Right. And then he starts hearing screams. And for the, like the second half of that scene, I could not distinguish screaming from cheering. Yep. It's completely blended together in this. I'm like, what am what am I hearing right now? Is it cheers? Is it screams? It's both. It's really unsettling. But there's another scene right before the, that, after they complete the test and they're shipping the bombs out. Right. And they're driving away where he's like s sitting there and Matt Damon's like, all right, thanks for three years of work. Bye. And you watch him like this thing that he's created. He now has to like it's no longer in his hand. Like you see him go through this thing of like, oh, I built this thing and now it's not mine anymore. It's not mine to control. But with the added weight of and it's the thing that could end the world. Yep. That exchange between the two of them and the acting of this movie is incredible. You watch it slipping like sand through his fingers and it's kind of devastating even though you knew this was always going to happen right yeah man i i think that that's a really good point and it did a good job of playing him not as like um naive like he knew what he was doing and he knew what he was getting into but there is also enough ego where it's like mm -hmm. i'm the guy who can crap this i'm the guy totally. who can make this happen and so you see that in him um, yeah i mean but, he's he's willing completely to like that's why he stops being a communist Right. As soon as he realizes that he can't join the top secret and get his Q clearance, he's like, I'll cash in all of my ideal chips, Absolutely. Which, which is like kind of a moment of like, oof, OK, like that's a touch like problematic as a character. Like we don't see that in our protagonists a lot where like, you know, most of our protagonists are like are like Captain America, right? Where they're like, my ideals, even if I'm the only one standing for my ideals, it doesn't matter. I'm going to stand alone. And you watch Oppenheimer be like, nah. I'll just say whatever you want me to say so that I can be a part of the project. Yeah, I mean, he felt so spineless in a lot of the movie and especially in all those deposition scenes where he's just sitting on that bench kind of emasculated and literally naked <laughs> at mm -hmm. one point. Um, but I think that's what made him so weird and so hard to root for. And again, what left me cold of like, I'm just not connecting with him as a character. I thought of even what you said of like, if I'm not rooting for someone, it's hard mm. for me to connect. Mm -hmm. And normally I'm like, no, you're crazy. But I did feel like that <laughs> in my first viewing of like, I don't even know if I'm rooting for this guy. But then again, on the second viewing, I was like, this is a man so crushed by the weight of the sin that he's committed of what yeah. he has done that that's what this is. It's just like he's almost powerless against it and he's wrestling with it. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's like, like he the first maybe 40 minutes of the movie, I would say he's not particularly likable. He's he's not pretty likable for a lot of the movie, but he injects I think, a dude's apple with poison. He's just like that's, <laughs> like the first, that's like his first scene. Yeah, you're like oh god, you're this like guy's a psychopath. You're like oh my god, um, but so, um, but I I think it's so to me the first like half an hour of the movie right when he's going through school he comes back he starts being a, a professor, you know he goes through all of that first meets. Florence Pugh's character, Emily Blunt, like it's that power, like first 15 years of his life that you're just like crushing through really, really, really fast in like the first 40 minutes. 
I think it's really concerned with Oppenheimer as a genius and what that feels like. Um, which I got much more on my second viewing because I watched the first 40 minutes twice. Um, and like if you look at like the first like 15 minutes where he's in school and it keeps doing all those cutaway shots to like neutrons and atoms and like, you know, energy waves and whatever the quantum world is, right? The non Ant-Man quantum world. Um, and I was like, that's what obsession feels like yeah like when you're a creative or something and you're hard at work on a project and you can't fall asleep at night because you're just like cycling through things i was like the first 15 minutes of the movie feels like what obsessive creativeness is and i felt like that a little bit made me empathize with him because i was like this guy is so caught up within his own thing that he can't get out of his brain that he's willing to travel across the world and learn new languages because he's like obsessively um like in pursuit of something so i'm curious do you have any other most meaningful characters besides oppenheimer anyone else who jumped out to you well there for starters are so many characters in this movie um, I think that is if there's one criticism I have, it's that there are so many characters that half the time when they're talking about someone in the deposition. I'm like, I don't know who that person is, man. Like you just said, like Friedrich. And I'm like, I, I don't know who the heck that is. <laughs> so I actually want to jump in and give my most meaningful character as a response to that. OK, which is like, again, the first time I saw it, another thing I hated about this movie was I was like, it feels like watching Saturday Night Live when you're watching an opening sketch. And then all of a sudden Alec Baldwin walks on stage and you're like, no way, that's Alec Baldwin. Or all of a sudden, like, it's like, oh, man, that's Frasier. Oh, look, it's, you know, uh, that is exactly what this movie feels like. It just felt like the random cameo of like, oh, Oh my God, Josh Josh Hartnett's in this movie. That's awesome. And so the first time that I watched this, I was so annoyed because, again, I hated it. And I was like, this is just garbage stunt casting. Nolan building a shrine to himself, showing like, hey, if you don't have an Oscar, you can't speak more than two lines in my movie. Because I was like, this is just like Oscar winner, Oscar winner. And so I was so annoyed by it. (laughs) And I hated it. The second time I watched it, Uh I was like, no, Rob, idiot. (laughs) First time watching Rob was wrong. Second time watching Rob was right. Because what I realized is two things. One having so many famous people in it actually helped me track the plot because when they would cut to Casey Affleck, when they'd cut to Matt Damon, when they'd cut to Robert Downey Jr., when they'd cut to Rami Malek, when they'd cut to all these different people, I was like, oh yeah, I can track with this timeline right? because I knew who that actor was. And it's Christopher Nolan's brilliance of like, he's like, okay, I'm going to give dumb people like Rob little bread crumbs so they can follow what's going along here. (laughs) And so that was reason number one that I liked it. But reason number two that is much more significant to me is I, I didn't feel the Saturday Night Live cameo the second time. There's a scene when uh, Gary Oldman comes and he is playing uh, Eisenhower and yep. he's, he's just there. And I was like, okay, he, because that's Gary Oldman, I felt the weight yes. of the power of Eisenhower yes. because I knew he, not just the performance, but I knew he is an important man. And his importance like emanated through the screen. Right. Casey Affleck playing a general. If it's a random actor number three who's like 
I've maybe seen in an episode of CSI or whatever else, that's fine. Because it's Casey Affleck, all of a sudden there's a weight and authority. Right. And no more so than Robert Downey Jr., who is there. And it's like, okay, because he matters, because he's going after him, there is an authority there. So right. because these are men who are not just like, hey, cool characters. It's like, no, these are men of power and authority that are coming at Oppenheimer. And that was the thing that was unlocked to me the second time where I was like, okay, that casting actually works much more powerfully because it is showing the power that these actors have, not just as performers, but as celebrities. Yeah. That's a good take, dude. That's a good take. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is a super solid take. I, so yeah, I, I uh, uh, agree. It like helps you anchor to certain, certain parts of it. I think one of the confusing things for me with the number of characters that this, that this movie had though was for starters, this movie does a lot of tell don't show which is yes. the opposite of what you're supposed to do in a movie. You're supposed to show, don't tell, but they're covering so much ground that there is a lot of this movie of people just in rooms talking to each other. Even in the not deposition scenes, it's a lot of people in rooms talking to each other. Um, but in a lot of the deposition scenes, some of the things that I, I struggled with was when they would talk about someone. They'd be like, oh, yes, uh, you know, Hess and Miller or something, right? And I'm like, if you said Casey Affleck and Josh Hartnett, I'd be tracking with you. But right. I don't know anyone's names. <laughs> like, so when they were actually on screen, I was like, oh, that guy. Oh, Rami Malek's back. He saw him in the hotel or whatever. Got it. But like, I don't know what Rami Malek's character's name was. So in the deposition, if they had referred to him as like Bruno Schlovervitz or whatever, right? Like, I, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Yeah, and again, that's why I felt, and I think not just me, but a lot of people felt like lost in this movie because they're just throwing so many right. timelines, people, events, and it's just like overwhelm. And yeah, you don't even know what it is. It's just like, hey, on September 17th, you talked about this. And it was like, what was going on there? And again, that's why you needed the star power to kind of unlock yes. those scenes and make it pop. Yeah. And I mean, I actually did sort of enjoy the Saturday Night Live of it all at first. Like when like Josh Hartnett was on screen, I was like, Josh Hartnett, you're not in movies anymore. What are you doing in this movie? That's awesome. <laughs> and he's really good in it. And he he's in a Black Mirror episode that actually came out this year. And okay. so I'm loving the little like Josh Hartnett comeback. Like I didn't sell my Josh Hartnett stock. So I'm proud that he's like still alive and kicking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like even... Even what you said there about like using celebrities to bring you into this idea, right? So like Josh Hartnett is really likable, right? Like, have you ever watched a movie where you were like, Josh Hartnett's a creep. I hate that guy, right? Never. Like, like never. Perfect. Like, yeah, he's he's like charming and kind and an all-American boy. And so when you meet him in the lab, like your perception of who he is is colored by the Josh Hartnett of it all, right? You go like, oh, that's Josh Hartnett. Or like when Casey Affleck shows up, you go like, I don't know how I feel about this guy. <laughs> because yeah. Casey Affleck plays a lot of characters that you don't know how to feel about. <laughs> and that like, it's, 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 it's the Gary Oldman thing. Like, oh, Gary Oldman's on screen. Uh, I'm paying attention because you are like Sir Gary Oldman or whatever, right? Like you hold weight as a person. And so, yeah, those using, not just using faces to help us track, but using their reputation to sort of color the character brings us on board faster and they don't have to do as much legwork. Like I was so thankful every time Matt Damon was on screen because he's given like one liners and so much energy. I'm like, he's in a different movie. He's in like a, <laughs> you know, Tony Scott movie or a Ridley Scott movie. You know, he's just like 
because America needs you. Like he's just kind of going going for it, and everyone else is giving these subtle, nuanced performances. Right. And it's interesting because everyone is leaning into type, except Robert Downey Jr., who is playing someone unlike he's ever played before. Ab- absolutely. So Robert Downey Jr. in this movie, I don't know if he's like my most meaningful character, but he is incredible in this movie. There is there is a couple moments in which he's being like very politician-y in which there's a little Tony Stark there, right? The 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 like charming Robert Downey is there. And because, you know, it's him, right? But when the twist happens at the end, that is sort of a twist, not really a twist, because he is somewhat antagonistic to Oppenheimer the whole time. But when the twist comes that he's like orchestrating his career around taking this guy down. And he like slips into that like truly evil politician mode. That is a Robert Downey I don't think we've ever seen before. Ever. Wasn't in Zodiac, certainly isn't in any of the Marvel movies, right? Like early Robert Downey, you know, in the 90s, like he's always somewhat kind of charming. And he was unsettlingly like powerful, like almost like Christopher Plummer, right? Like that level of just kind of like this power holding, like evil person. And it worked, man. And I was like, again, what a gift, you know, like, again, it flipped over to me being mad at Nolan to me being like, what a gift that he could pull this performance out of Robert Downey Jr. That he could talk him into Robert Downey, who's kind of disappeared post, you know, Avengers. He's done a few things here and there, but like to see him come back and a man who is so incredibly talented, but do real acting and play an actual character who's not yeah. just another, hey, I'm charming, one-liners, that sort of stuff. I was like, what a gift and a treat this is. And and I I think that that, that may have been the case in which the, he's he's using the Tony Stark against us, like Nolan is, right? Like you see him, you go, oh, Robert Downey Jr., I like him. He's this politician who ostensibly I'm on board with, right? Like you have no reason to dislike him for most of the movie, right? Yep. You And you have reasons to question Oppenheimer, right? Like, is he a communist? <laughs> Right. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, but you, you there is there is something about my buddy Tony Stark that I just kind of trust. Right. So for a good portion of, of this movie, you have no real reason to have malice towards Robert Downey Jr., even if you can feel he's antagonistic to the protagonist. Right. So when the when the flip comes, it's not ultra surprising, but also like the reveal that he is like truly eat like a bad dude (laughs) right like it's i felt like um alden ehrenreich feels right just kind of totally blindsided and it it works because again you're bringing this other sort of not baggage but he's han solo i forgot that until you just said that right now like yeah (laughs) so okay so we want to talk about someone that i love seeing a movie again i love that alden ehrenreich was in this movie because I loved him as an actor when his star was first kind of starting to rise and that poor Han Solo movie, which was just like it tried its best, but like absolutely, I feel like napalmed his career. Like he got put too. in, he, he, he got put in actor jail for, he wasn't bad. He just wasn't Han Solo. Right. I thought he not was his really fault. good, but he's literally not Harrison Ford. <laughs> he's not so Harrison that. Ford. Like what yeah. was he going to do? Right. And so because he didn't have any huge career behind him to rely on he got kind of tossed in actor's jail 
and he's had a couple that like, he was in cocaine bear and like to see him going toe to toe with Robert Downey Jr. I was so excited because like he's got chops like he could be a really great like I'd love to see him like I want to keep seeing him and stuff. But uh, he he got the short end of the solo stick. And uh, if so he, he and Josh really Hartnett happy. did like a buddy cop movie, I would oh, like, let's go. <laughs> OK, so we've talked for, you know, 45 minutes about dudes. Which this is a dude centric movie. We need to talk about. Movie. We need to talk about two incredibly female, incredible female performances, mm-hmm. um, or performers. I don't know if it's performances, but let's talk about Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh. Who okay. do you want to take first? Let's talk about Emily Blunt first. Okay, because she's great in this movie. She's great in most movies she's in. Uh, I'm a big Emily Blunt fan. Um, big. Big fan of hers. She's great in this movie and honestly plays a little against type as well. Emily Blunt is normally kind of like bristly, but really likable. And in this movie, she's like, you don't quite know. Like she's a drunk who can't take care of her child, who seems to be problematic. Like she I also think that she's not leaning into the typically the typical Emily Blunt type either. I feel so bad for her in this movie, like. One of the first like scenes where we get to know her, you hear the baby crying, you see her with a bottle of alcohol. If you've ever been a parent for like 14 hours of the kid that you're continuing try- trying to console, it really does make you want to turn to an alcoholic. Like I d- and when he goes and he's like, hey, the baby's crying, are you going to do anything? I was like, you jerk, you need to see the Barbie movie. You are a monster. <laughs> and, and I just felt bad for her. I was like, she's trapped in like such a crappy marriage. And, you know, but she, but she, you know, Nolan, like one of the criticisms about this movie is Nolan makes her look really bad, which is just kind of like this aloof, out of touch drunk. There's another scene where both the kids are crying and she's just kind of like standing, sitting there paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And so she's not likable, but Nolan's not doing her any favors. So there is a general criticism about Nolan that he doesn't handle his female characters super well. He does have this whole thing about like the haunted dead wife who comes back to haunt the protagonist in like every single one of his movies, no dead wives in this movie. So that's nice. Um, (laughs) just a wife who wishes she was dead. Just apparently. Yeah. Um, so it certainly isn't doing that character any favors, but I honestly do think that even most of the men in this movie are presented as like, not wholly likable, right? Correct. I think this movie does an incredible job of painting like, complicated humans who have like a decent amount of what we would call like sin and baggage right of like made bad moral choices in their life ultimately having to say like is my life good is the result of my life good or bad and what i end up loving about it might it's not my most meaningful scene but it's one of my most memorable scenes in the movie is the the moment where emily blunt is in the deposition yes and there's a moment right before out in the hallway where um, Oppenheimer turns to his, his lawyer and, and, and says, like, basically, like, don't presume to understand what my marriage is and whether or not my wife should go on the stand. Right. Like, you don't get it. Right. Yeah. Everything you think about her. Does she drink too much? Is she um, unreliable? All those things? Yeah, sure. M- m- maybe all that's true. But like, you don't understand the fundamental nature of our marriage. And it cuts back to the scene in which they're in the woods and uh, Florence Pugh's character has died and he's blaming himself. 
And she has that scene with him, which is really confrontational, where basically she says, like, you don't get for like other people to feel sorry for you for the consequences of your poor choices. Yes. Right. And it's it was like, oh, man, did those words hit like. My wife's never said that to me before, but like that felt like marriage, right? Of someone who is there for you, who gets to look you in the eye and say, like, this isn't about you right now. You 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 don't get to make this about you, right? Like, um, and then to see them like, and again, this is like a a, a flashback from a flash forward or whatever, whatever in the timeline, but to see that moment play out towards the end of the film of like, okay, they have a a problematic marriage. They don't have a great relationship, but they found something in it in which they are a support to one another, right? Despite all of the bad. And then you see her come out in that deposition and just crush this lawyer that has been basically owning everyone else. And you go like, like it was this hero moment for her without redeeming any of her previous bad decisions, right? Like she was a bad mom in the movie, but you go like, okay, people aren't one dimensional. People are able to find companionship and support sometimes even in the worst situations or even without the ideal partner, maybe, right? Like to me, that was a really interesting exploration of what certain areas of marriage kind of can look like with imperfect people. Well, and I was thinking what she's saying to them, which is like, you're just sitting here and taking it. And her criticism of him, that's what I thought on the first viewing of like, why is he not fighting back? Why is he like, this is the smartest guy, one of the smartest guys in the world. You know, he can, and he's well-spoken. He's articulate. Like he can make a case for himself. Right. And so I felt her frustration the first time of like, this guy's a coward and he's spineless and he's just sitting on a bench looking down at his lap while he's being destroyed. And why is that? Again, I realized the second time why that was happening because of his own guilt and shame and that sort of thing. And he wanted to, you know, make good on his name if anyone ever read the transcripts. But the other thing was she gets the hero moment where like, yes, even if you're in a troubling marriage, you're fighting with each other, that sort of stuff that can happen at home. But when someone attacks your spouse, you get more defensive, even than if you yourself is being attacked. Mm -hmm. And so her coming out like mama bear coming after them in the deposition is one of the big like scenes that you would see in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie where she's like, no, sir, you do not get to stand up. And it's like a, yeah. more of a few good men scene where she's standing up to them. She's zinging the one liners and she's going after them. And then later on, she gets the other great moment, which uh, the safety dude, Benny. I think oh, Benny yeah, she doesn't shake his, she, shake his hand. Goes to shake his hand. And earlier on, she's like, why did you shake his hand? And then you see just a close up of her hands and she's just standing there and she's like, I will not dignify you with a handshake. And it's just stone cold. So she gets two of the big, like, yeah. sheer moments in a movie without a, without a lot of them. Yeah. So, so something that is interesting is we're talking about, like, supporting characters in, in this movie. And this has come out a lot in the interviews that uh, specifically Matt Damon and Emily Blunt did. Um, and they were talking about how Nolan pitched this project to both of them. And basically what he said is he said, like, you're going to come in and your entire job as an actor is to support Killian Murphy. Like, we're going to take this three-hour epic, we're going to put it on top of him, and your job is just to come in and, like, support what we're doing with him. Wow. That's your job. And, you know, Killian Murphy is normally the character actor. He's normally Robert Downey Jr. in most movies. He's had, Mm -hmm. I think, Peaky Blinders and a few other things where he's the leading man. Have you seen Peaky Blinders? I never have. Bro, he's so good in that movie. Or not, not the movie. It's a show. It's like uh, six six seasons on Netflix. He's 
so good. I've I've liked him and everything that he's done, but he's really just been a character actor, you know, besides that and leading a few different things. So it is yeah. interesting for him to get such a big weight put on his shoulders, which brings me to a new thing we've never done on Meaning of the Movie, which is us predicting what Oscars will Oppenheimer win? Yeah. What Oscars will it win? What do you have, Andrew? What, give me a couple that you think it's going to win. Okay, so if um, Killian Murphy does not win Best Actor, I'm going to be very upset. Like, he is so good in this movie. A, and, yeah. I mean, like, this is... This is and it's not even an Oscar bait movie, right? Like it is. I think this is the most Oscar-y movie Christopher Nolan's ever made. But like oh, this far. is this is a masterpiece movie. And Killian Murphy is holds holding together and is in, incredible. So not only is he he nominated, but if he doesn't win, unless something's coming out later this year that I don't know about. If he doesn't win, I'm going to be super, super shocked. Um, I hope Robert Downey gets a, a supporting nomination. I don't know that he would win it. But I re I hope he would. And I think he gets nominated for sure. I mean, the supporting actor and actress is a lot of times the lifetime achievement category for someone who is much more a comedy star or an action star. This is when a Bill Murray, although he did not win, but like that type of guy mm -hmm. will win an Oscar. And so um, I, I think he's a lock to be nominated. In fact, I think this movie is the number one nominated movie like, like if there's a too. bet to be put on it, I think it's going to get crazy nominations because it's I mean, the perfect storm of writing, directing, performances, and technical wizardry. Wizardry, right? I mean, sound design. If we like talk about sound design for a second, like the way it uses sound, we we, we talked about that scene with like the screaming and the cheering. The, I mean, the, that whole scene to me is as much about sound design as anything else. When the bomb goes off, right? is like totally silent and you watch everyone's reaction to just the light and then you watch everyone's reaction to the sound which to the slap <laughs> right which honestly is what would happen it's like lightning right. right you see the lightning before you hear it and they're like 10 miles away or something so that's maybe not in the uh, not the amount of delay that the movie gives us but like that that was so surprising to me right i was waiting for the countdown i was waiting for the big explosion and it's just silent. Right. And, and, and you just and you just hear his breathing. Right. Like, again, you're so in his space. The sound design, it's amazing. I think the score. What did you think about the score? I, I thought it was just gorgeous and haunting. Dude, it was awesome. I mean, it, Nolan uses score as like almost a drummer in a band more than anything else. And that's so, I just that's such a great way of putting that. I just think this movie is a culmination of every Nolan trick because he started doing that really in the Batman movies. Inception, it's done so well where that score is driving on. Mm -hmm. Interstellar's the other movie that I think of where that score is just like pulling us through, intercutting all these different things. Mm -hmm. But man, it felt like for the last 40 minutes, that score is just like holding us together. And it's not... What I loved about this movie is it's so showing off all the time, and yet it's so subdued at the same time. <laughs> What? And I don't know how he freaking did that to make a movie that, that's like so showy and so subdued. Yes, I, I think that's how I feel. That's the way I open this podcast by saying I don't really know how to talk about this movie because like, yeah, it, it's this almost paradox of like it's just people in rooms talking. But yes. at, at, but also somehow riveting and some of the best like acting and tension I've seen in movies this year. Um, so, yeah, I think cinematography 
is gorgeous. I, I see no no reason for it not to get nominated for that. Yeah, I mean, my big prediction is not only is it going to be the most nominated, but I think it's going to be on a Titanic run. I think this movie is like literally the movie Titanic is what I'm talking about, where it won yeah. every technical award and it won Best Director and it won Best Picture. I think this is Titanic with acting. And so I think it's going to win all the technical stuff. But Titanic didn't even, I think, get nominated for many acting awards yeah. or any. Uh, <laughs> this is going to get nominated from all, and it's going to win for sure Killian Murphy and probably Robert Downey Jr. Do you think Emily Blunt gets nominated? I don't. No, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like a sexist now. For <laughs> I love the Barbie movie, by the way, but like, I don't know. I think this movie, like, I don't think her, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I could... I could see it maybe happening for sure. Not Florence Pugh. Um, we we haven't really talked about Florence Pugh. Do you want to do you want to touch on her? Because she's the only other significant female character in this movie. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Florence Pugh. What do you got? So. In going into this movie, I, I read online, there was a lot of kind of buzz about the like gratuitous nudity of basically her entire character. And I was trying to figure out what I made of that when actually watching the movie, because it did somewhat feel like they hired her to be crazy and naked, which yeah. is not often for starters. I don't think I've ever seen a Nolan movie with any nudity. No, I mean, unless you call like Batman nipples nudity, then no. right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he took the nipples off the bat suit. That oh, that's is true. A that, Joel Schumacher that's... thing. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> don't don't you put that on Christopher Nolan? <laughs> <laughs> my bad, my bad. No, there no never nudity. Uh... Yeah, I, I don't think there's been any nudity in any Nolan movie ever, which sort of surprised me that there was any, much less to the degree that there was. And the, if yeah, was like I didn't know it was movie, there. I'd expect and I, it. I took my my oldest daughter, you know. And I knew it was radar, that sort of thing. But the nudity sure. happened and I was like, what? Like, it brushed me back. And, you know, I was like, I had no idea this was in the movie. Yeah. And it's 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 kind of quite a bit. Um, and I was trying to figure out, like, Christopher Nolan isn't a director like a Scorsese or a Fincher who would be like, this is grown up. We should just make them naked. Right. Like, <laughs> by the way, I like both those directors a lot. But there are too. certain there, there are certain directors that they'll be like, this scene should have nudity in it. Why not? Right. That, that that's just kind of the, the, the reason Nolan has never proved himself to be that kind of director before. So it made me think like, why? Right. Like, why do this? And what it brought me back to. And I don't know if I fully agree with it being like how it was executed or that it was even necessary. But if we if you go back to the premise of like this whole movie is about exploring Oppenheimer and everyone is to some degree a foil or an antagonist to him, right? It's it's just about how they interact with him. And I thought one of the things that they were, or the, the main thing that they do with her character is really show kind of how flawed of a person he is, right? That he's, that while being a genius and being somewhat he, like heroic in a way, like morally heroic towards the end of his life, that like he was morally compromised, in other ways and i think you can say someone has an affair without feeling it and there is sort of a grossness to the or not a, but just like a 
like I don't need to be here in like the first couple scenes that made him not this like likable protagonist and made him sort of questionable. And I think maybe that was part of it. And then the scene where she shows up basically in the um, deposition deposition. I don't know why I can't remember the word deposition. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard word, folks. Deposition. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Um, the, 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 like the, that was the one that I was like, oh, my God. Um, but it, it comes after like suddenly he goes from being in a full suit to just sitting there in the chair naked. And one of the things I was thinking about is like when your own sin, specifically like your sex life, it becomes part of the public record. Basically, like, it, like even anyone that, that you know, that, that's like in the tabloids, like celebrities, it's like, oh, so and so had an affair or yada, yada, yada. Right. Like as soon as your sex life gets put in the public record, basically what that means is everyone's just thinking about you having sex. Yeah. And well, and not only that, but his wife knew that everyone's thinking about him having right. an affair and having sex with someone else. Right. And so I think the meaning of that scene wasn't gratuitous. It felt that way to me, honestly, but I think like it was just, again, Nolan exploring in another way. This guy is being dragged through the coals and every single way he is being punished for his sin of being, creating the nuclear bomb in every single way. Right. And everything, every single thing that he did and said, even though much of it had nothing to do with the creation of the nuclear bomb, right. is going to be put on the public square and digested and debated. Right. And they say it a couple of times, like, who would want to defend their whole life? Who would who, who, want to justify their whole life is what they say. So I, I, it, I, I struggle with that because I feel like is it gratuitous? Like, yes, but also like, there's a part, a part of me that like trusts Nolan and wanted to give it a second thought about like, why do this? You've never done this before. Why do it now? And I think there is a fundamental thematic and like storytelling reason behind it all um, that, you know, really pushed that sort of, uh, you know, call it, uh, you know, character flaw or sin or compromised ethics in the beginning of his life towards the front. Yeah, I'm not going to like strongly defend it, but I also don't want to attack it either because i think there's definitely like reason for it to be there especially that scene in deposition like some yeah. of the other scenes it was just like okay this is a man of passion and the other thing that i took from her storyline was he was a man who used everyone else around him for his own purposes and then discarded of them you know like when they weren't necessary anymore and she right. was that sort of thing yeah and then you know again her killing herself is ultimately where he felt the sin of like, okay, I'm just using people for whatever. And maybe there is, you know, more of a weight to this than I'm thinking about more of a like, Hey, this, I may be done with them, but they're not done with me and they're not done with what happened with us. Yeah. And I think that line that his, his wife has that Emily Blunkett does about the, like, you, you don't get to be the victim for dealing with the consequences of your own actions that hits so much more when we've basically experienced the affair and we've watched her experience the affair and then she's it, it, like it's it's not just a line right like we know the emotional journey they've both been on like intimately yep uh um and it it, it makes that moment better maybe anyway i mean it's there's there's not a lot of women in this movie um classic there's, nolan there's not and i do think the best defense for that is one it's the military complex in the 1940s and so right like there there weren't women here yeah. right and 
And two, this is Oppenheimer's movie and everyone else is a supporting character in every possible way. Almost a right. two-dimensional flat yep. kind of supporting character. Um, yeah. L- Even the men. Go- going back to the Oscar conversation real quick. Yes. I think the I, I do. I think this is going to win Best Picture. I think it's by far my front runner. Okay. I think it's going to win Best. And if it does, it's winning Best Director. It's going to win Best Actor. And I don't know if it'll win Best Screenplay. Um, I'll be curious what else is nominated. But I could see it just... I see it cleaning up. I feel like this is a... 11 12 oscar movie do do you think it skunks the barbie movie do you think do do you think the barbie movie has anything on oppenheimer when it comes to the oscars i don't think barbie will win a single oscar over oppenheimer no not not even screenplay i i see barbie winning best original well they 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 won't be say that they're not in the same category they, they won't be in the same in the same category because Barbie will be an original screenplay where this is adapted off of a book. So that's handy for the Barbie movie. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't see Ryan Gosling winning over Robert Downey Jr. Although I loved him. He's the best part of the Barbie movie, but I don't see him winning. <laughs> Still not a good take. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I also hate the kids from Jurassic Park. So, uh... <laughs> Who, by the way, I can't believe we didn't mention this on the Social Network episode, kid from Jurassic Park in the Social Network. Yes! <laughs> So this is not the episode to talk about this, but the kid that you hate for Jurassic Park is one of the leads in the social network. <laughs> Insane. Okay. Um, we've gone all over the... This, this is a really, really difficult movie to talk about, people. I don't know if you're entertained. I don't know if you're bored to death. But I can tell you, this is such a complex movie to watch and such a complex movie to talk about. But Andrew, I'm going to put you on the stand in the mm-hmm. deposition and ask you right now... What does this movie mean? What is the meaning of Oppenheimer? What is the meaning of Oppenheimer? I think the man, the meaning of Oppenheimer truly at the end of the day, I think is the exploration of the, um, the emotional weight and, uh, call it guilt or grief or responsibility or whatever of being the genius who is entrusted with something that changes the world, right? In this case, potentially ends the world. But to some degree, I wish there was a movie like this about go, going back to the to the social network about like Mark Zuckerberg. Like, do you realize the thing you built for fun because you're smart actually ended the way that people communicate the entire world is actually nullified neurons in people's brains and are like it's breaking down social structures and communication. Like you've literally changed the world in a way that has huge ethical and moral kind of like implications. I think that's what this movie is about is how, how do the geniuses in the world deal with the ramifications of their creations when those creations have huge moral and ethical consequences on people's lives? Yeah, man, I, I think that's right. I do think I wish social network had <laughs> that sort of scene of Zuckerberg staring in the camera. Like, why, what have I done? Right. And this, this movie again, the fire, the burning, all that sort of stuff is so much there of like, okay, this powerful thing I've unleashed. Um, for me, what, how, the about, mean- how, how, how about you? Like what's, what's your meaning? Yeah. For me, the meaning of the movie is there are movies like Arrival or even Armageddon where like the Colonel comes in a helicopter and is like, we're facing the end of the world, your government, your country needs you. And then they go and they kind of step up and do the heroic thing and like crack the case and save the day. Sure. And Armageddon, they like 
you know, break apart the meteor and <laughs> they send and, the oil uh, oil drillers to space. Exactly. It's, easy, it's easier to teach an oil driller to be an astronaut than an astronaut to be an right. oil driller. In Arrival, it's like, okay, she cracks the code of the aliens. And it's easy for us to take for granted in the 1940s how powerful patriotism is and how much it was like, okay, this is the greatest generation standing up against the greatest evil and what that meant for Oppenheimer to go and step up into it. And even though everyone around him was wrestling with the moral, philosophical, and ethical weight of creating the nuclear bomb, he still knew that, like, one, I can do this, and two, my country needs me. And so it was really powerful to see him power through all that, make it happen, and then again, like I said, then think about the consequences of that sin and that mistake for the rest of his life. And normally with a biopic, what I hate is it spans the whole life because I'm like, this is not a story. This is like a book that just kind of spools all on and on. Right. But that before and after of like, no, I have to climb this mountain. And then, oh my God, I climbed this mountain. What have I done? Mm -hmm. Those two things hold this movie together like atoms and a neutron bomb. Like they really are so powerful. And that's what the meaning of this movie is to me. That was great and very well said. Way to pull some science into it. Um, <laughs> very, very good. Impressed. Um, yeah, it's this is an incredible movie. Um, don't I would say don't watch this movie if you're like, man, nah, we'll pop something on. Like, watch this movie, but you do kind of have to be ready to like sit down and lean in. Um, yeah, if you're if if you're not leaning forward, it's not only you're gonna miss stuff, but you're not gonna enjoy it. We both experienced that the, 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 this thing. Like it is super enjoyable if you are ready to lean in and process. And it's a then brew a pot of coffee, get your notepad ready, and like you need to be an active participant. You can't be scrolling on your phone. You've got to really give yourself over to this movie, which honestly is what is Nolan's thing. If if we've picked on Nolan a lot about his, you know, not making great female characters but like his whole thing he for one he doesn't let cell phones on his set if you have a cell phone on the set like you get kicked off like he wants everyone who's there actively engaged in the work of making the movie and he likes to make movies in which people are leaning forward and actively having to participate it's half the reason he probably tells them in not sequential order um like it's what he wants and so if you're ready to do that it is i think i'm gonna use your word from before truly a masterpiece yeah, I'd imagine most people have gotten this far in the podcast have uh, watched it. But if you haven't, if you listened to the discussion, really watch it, give yourself over to it and um, think more deeply about it. And if you watched it the first time and didn't like it, I do think it is a movie that demands a second watch and rewards a second watch pretty profoundly. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. That is it for this week's episode of The Meaning of the Movie. We will see you next time. Oh!